So I'm a theoretical astrophysicist uh, working on what I think are some of the most exciting open and challenging questions. So the first is trying to understand the nature of dark matter. And the second question is uh, the nature of black holes. Part of my interest in these two questions, aside from the fact that we now have enormous amount of data that can help us understand these very, very enigmatic objects in the universe, is that we actually have a standard theory, a theoretical model that works extremely well. So this is a model of structure formation in which dark matter, which is the dominant matter component in the universe, is in the driving seat. It's sort of the scaffolding in which all the first galaxies form, the first stars form, and so on. So while we have this sort of exquisite inventory and role for dark matter, we actually do not know what it is, what it's composed of, what kind of particle it is, when it was created in the universe, and so on and so forth. Uh, similarly, with black holes, uh, we know that they now exist, they are real. Uh, there is one at the center of our galaxy, which is a few million times the mass of the sun. And um, the one in the center of our galaxy is a dormant black hole. It's not really doing very much. But we see in the early universe that there are very, very massive black holes, black holes that are 1,000 times, 10,000 times more massive than the one in the center of the galaxy that play a very important role in shaping the properties of a galaxy, the galaxy which hosts them. So what really happens to black holes? How do they grow? How do they form, grow, evolve, and then end up as dead black holes is an open question. Because we know that black holes feed on gas, but what we don't understand is precisely how the gas makes it onto this very peculiar surface that all black holes have called the event horizon. So the physics, the astrophysics, if you will, of the details of the flow are very poorly understood. So once again, these are both problems where we have a very good broad brush understanding. In fact, a rather um, specialized, detailed broad brush understanding. However, the very nature of these objects remains unknown. So for me, that's what's really fascinating. The fact that these are sort of enigmatic objects, both you know, um, have consequences uh, uh, in terms of the predictions of the general theory of relativity. And yet, we simultaneously know a lot about them and nothing. So that paradox excites me because there's, uh, there's room in that kind of frontier to take great intellectual creative risks and come up with new ideas. So that's sort of where I, you know, I have placed myself and um, I'm working on trying to use the best data sets um, to see what give there is. So for example, one sort of intellectual issue that I'm interested in, as I said, is that there's a standard model that works incredibly well. However, there are gaps in this model. And the question is whether these gaps offer, do they portend new ideas and discoveries as we learn from history? So for example, in the 1850s, when Uranus was uh, discovered, 
and there was a wobble in the orbit of Uranus, Urbain Lavoisier predicted that there must be another gravitating body nearby. So Neptune was predicted and it was found. And all was well with uh, Newtonian theory. So the wobbling in the orbit of Uranus was not um, a case where Newton was proved wrong. It's just that we needed to refine the theory. We need to add another body to the solar system. Similarly, when we started collecting data, more accurate data for the orbit of Mercury, it was found that Mercury did not fit Newton's theory either. And Urbain Le Verrier played the same game. He said, hey, you know, maybe you have another planet between the Sun and Mercury. That could explain the wobble. And he called it Vulcan. And you know, people looked for it. They didn't find it. It doesn't exist. What was needed there was an entirely new theory. I mean, the theory of general relativity was needed to explain um, the orbit of Mercury, the precession of the perihelion of Mercury. So Newton was upended in one case. And Newton's ideas were just refined. So a disagreement between data and your theoretical expectation you know, can be one or the other. So what I'm really hoping and looking for, I'm looking for these gaps, these sort of disagreements between data and uh, theoretical predictions, with the hope that actually it may point us to a brand new discovery of a new theory, because we are in need of new explanations for dark matter and a better explanation for black holes. So that's sort of where, what I am trying to do in my work and I think is very exciting um, because one is challenging the current paradigm and looking for clues that would provide us uh, ideas to come up with alternative explanations. We don't have one yet, so we don't have one that's compelling quite yet. Uh, I think right now, um, I am definitely involved in the stage of trying to find these gaps. No, I mean, we do live in a very peculiar universe. I mean, the inventory of our universe is most bizarre. Uh, most of um, we know is a tiny fraction of the universe. 4%, 4 to 5% is really the matter that we know, the atoms that we know that are in the periodic table. The vast majority of stuff in the universe, both dark matter and dark energy, which dominate the universe, its fate and its content, are unknown. So um, I'm being somewhat modest when I say that you know we're sort of looking for a gap. Uh, we're really waiting for some kind of revolution, really. But one never quite knows when revolutions start. You know, we are in the midst of figuring out what kinds of reformulations might work in terms of dark matter and dark energy. For dark energy, at the moment, we have a placeholder theory. We just have um, a way to frame what has been measured so far. There really isn't a theory of when it is generated, when it kicks in in the universe, how it kicks in. And there are many, many ideas that are floating around, but none are personally convincing to me and the community at the moment. So at the moment, strangely, the formulation of dark energy that appears to work, the working model, is consistent with the sort of infamous cosmological constant that Einstein um, craftily inserted into his equation way back when in order to hold the universe steady. 
But it turns out that there is a huge gap in understanding from the physics side. So a physical explanation for the cosmological constant, for example, is 120 orders of magnitude discrepant from the measurement from the supernovae data that the astronomers published about 15 years ago or so. So, you know, there's, there's a gap, there's a you know, yawning gap, um, and there's a lot of work on trying to come up with a model uh, which kind of folds in what we know about Big Bang cosmology. So now we have a lot of incontrovertible observational evidence. So any formulation that we come up with has to be consistent with what all is observed now and has to make further predictions um, as well that can be tested. So with the dark matter question, uh, which I am a little more actively involved at this moment because there's a brand new data set that is just incredible. So much of the mapping of dark matter that I do is to try and understand uh, how granular dark matter is uh, and in terms of how it's spatially distributed in the universe. So we know, for example, that dark matter is lightly smeared everywhere in the universe but that there are regions where it is lumped gravitationally. And these regions that have uh, copious amounts of dark matter reveal themselves to us because of the light bending that they cause, so gravitational lensing. This phenomenon was predicted by Einstein, which is when you have a distant galaxy and it is viewed through a screen of a lump of dark matter, light rays get deflected and you see a distorted shape rather than the true shape of the background galaxies. And sometimes when you have a huge lump of matter, so both dark matter and visible matter will bend light, but it's just that dark matter is the primary matter component and it's implicated in much of the light bending that we see. Sometimes there is so much dark matter concentrated that you split a light beam into multiple beams. So you end up seeing multiple copies of the same galaxy. So in fact, you have only one true object that's emitting light, but you end up seeing multiple copies of it, all distorted, misshapen. And the Hubble Space Telescope, with the exquisite resolution that it has, has allowed us to chart these multiple itsy-bitsy pieces, which are actually images of the same individual object in detail. So what I'm doing right now, for example, is looking at these extreme distortions, uh, this gravitational lensing, strong gravitational lensing, and then doing a tomography of what all dark matter has to lie behind in a cylinder to give you the kind of distortions that you see. With a prior assumption for you know, normal shapes of galaxies. So galaxies are born with a range of shapes already, but we know that distribution. Um, and so we start with that, and then we look at the extreme distortions and try to figure out how much dark matter uh, is actually causing um, these uh, distortions. Now, the thing with the uh, Hubble Space Telescope is that the, the resolution is so exquisite that we are able to chart very small lumps of dark matter. So for example, with the latest data from um, this project called the Frontier Fields, gravitational lensing, lensed images of clusters of galaxies. So these are very large repositories of dark matter in the universe. Um, 
So my group, uh, we've just finished analysis and the paper has just been submitted, where we are able to chart lumps that are as small as a tiny little dwarf galaxy in our neighborhood, about a billion times the mass of the sun. That's the total mass of the galaxy. And we are able to resolve that scale lumps in these very, very distant objects. So these are very fuzzy little blobs, fuzzy little galaxies at huge cosmic distances that would otherwise be unavailable to us in terms of directly looking at them and studying them. And what this sort of mapping technique has allowed us to do is to figure out how clumpy dark matter is on these very small scales. The reason this is an interesting exercise is that there's a very concrete prediction from the theory, from this theory of cold dark matter, that the clumps, the spectrum of clumps that you should have, clumps of all sizes, in fact, you should have a never-ending set of smaller and smaller clumps um, in the universe. That's one of the key predictions. So for example, if we see a cutoff in the clump size, that tells you that the nature of dark matter is something fundamentally different from that predicted by the cold dark matter theory. I have to say, at the moment, cold dark matter looks pretty secure um, uh, to the best of our abilities at the moment. Um, it looks like the theory works quite well. So we're still in search of the gap. No, so what I do, so I work on these objects called clusters of galaxies. These, as I said earlier, are the largest repositories of dark matter. They kind of are 95% dark matter. So essentially what a cluster is, is a giant blob of dark matter which holds in its gravity about a thousand galaxies that are swirling around, but they're held in place by the gravity of the dark matter. So the Cluster acts as a very efficient lens in deflecting light. Um, and what the strength of the deflection, the distortion that we see, is proportional to the distance between us, this cluster, and the distant object. And since that depends on the geometry of the universe, um, it allows you to measure dark energy as well, which is why I love these objects. They allow you to simultaneously map dark matter and get a handle um, on, on dark energy. So this is not uh, the usual way that um, astronomers have been measuring dark energy. These are a new class of objects. They're kind of complicated objects in and of themselves, which is why they've not been so popular. But the data has gotten so much better in the last five years that we understand the complexities. Um, they're very violent places. There's a lot of transforming galaxies smashing into each other, stars spilling over. Um, and so these environments are very, very complicated in terms of the physics and the transformation of galaxies that's occurring inside these objects. But we understand them much, much better now, both with simulations, with numerical simulations, as well as real data. So they have now become new cosmological tools, kind of very effective astrophysical laboratories. Because now we understand them, they are actually laboratories. Before that, of course, they were enigmatic objects, right? We didn't really understand them. But now we understand them uh, quite well. I like them because they are complex. And the complexity allows us a certain kind of, um, requires of us a certain detailed physical understanding. And with the data, we are now forced to go beyond a simple mathematical model 
we really need to kind of, you have these various views of clusters, clusters look, viewed through many different wavelengths that we have to now have a composite understanding of how the cluster glows in the x-rays. Um, the dark matter, of course, does nothing, but you have all these galaxies that you see glowing in the optical, giving us optical light. And so we have to kind of square everything that we see and come up with a comprehensive model. So I'm kind of interested always in sort of um, making comprehensive models, um, not just um, an explanation um, that works for one tiny aspect of the phenomenon. I'm kind of interested in a more complete understanding. Um, so clusters are quite enticing uh, as cosmic objects. Yeah, so I mean, I think the, the structure formation in the late universe is somewhat, which is sort of what I work on, is somewhat decoupled from the details of the very early universe and the early pre-Big Bang stuff. Mm -hmm. It's contingent, of course, on our universe having had an inflationary stage, because without all of that, you can't really explain the structure formation um, that we see today. So it's kind of contingent. So the pre-Big Bang theories, they are not as directly relevant. Because I mean, but you know, that's a big problem with those theories anyway, right? So they are not, you cannot test them empirically in the ways in which we have become accustomed to in science. Um, and that's why it's very hard to discriminate uh, amongst these various string theory models, all of which are compelling in some way, but they can't be independently tested. They, they all need to patch on to big, the Big Bang and inflation and structure formation that follows afterward. But um, you cannot independently test uh, the validity of those theories. So that does not have a direct bearing. So that can be an unknown and I can still do the kinds of testing that I do. So in many ways, the, the late universe, if you will, uh, which is you know, 400,000 years after the Big Bang, pretty much, uh, is somewhat decoupled. The theories that describe structure formation, they have to be consistent. The initial conditions for this theory are provided by Guth's models um, and the models of, but the multiverse per se, um, is not directly relevant. However, in order to make sense of why the universe that we have, why structure formation is the way it is, um, I think the multiverse is a very, very attractive explanation. And I, for one, actually believe in the multiverse, and I use the word believe uh, very intentionally here. I mean, it is definitely the golden age in uh, cosmology because, you know, of this unique confluence of ideas and instruments. So technology has really made possible um, the testing of our theories at a level that was unprecedented before. And they have delivered, all these experiments have delivered a very exciting results, even if they're null results. So, for example, um, the LHC with the discovery of the Higgs has given us a lot more comfort in the standard model. Um, Planck, WMAP um, have shown us that our understanding of how the early fluctuations in the universe grew and formed this sort of this late universe theory is pretty secure. Our current theory is pretty secure and it's been tested to pretty high uh, degree of precision. 
And I think it's also consequential that the dark matter direct detection experiments have not found anything. I mean, I think that's interesting too, because that's telling us now all these experiments are reaching the limits of their sensitivity, what they were planned for, and they're still not detecting. So something is fundamentally off and awry in our understanding. And I think the challenge really in the next decade is to figure out which all pieces don't fit and is there a pattern that emerges that would tell us about is it a fundamentally new theory of gravity that's needed or is it a complete rethink of some aspects of particle physics that are needed. So I think that those are the big um, open questions. You know, I um, the, from the work that I uh, that I've been doing, I've been trying to test the the standard model, right? And I think, as I said, the standard model seems to be working very well. So at the moment, I am part of the establishment. Um, there's nothing quite um, that has emerged in which I'm attacking the current paradigm. But what has been crazily suggested. Um, is an alternative to dark matter. So there's a theory called MOND, which is a modified Newtonian dynamics. It's a theory that was proposed by Jacob Bekenstein and Mordecai Milgram, um, two Israeli astrophysicists. And the idea here is that in the regime when accelerations are very, very small, you have to actually amend Newton's laws. And remember, I was talking about how when you find mismatches, you could interpret it as a, a current theory just needing a little bit of refinement or a fundamentally new theory. So this model um, suggests that all you need is a slight tweak to Newton's laws and that that would be sufficient to, to explain away dark matter. There's sort of no need for dark matter. So it turns out that um, my work, a lot, some of my work actually confronted that theory with clusters, these complicated objects. So it turns out that galaxies are also repositories of dark matter. And you know that there's a lot of dark matter in them when you map the speeds of stars around a galaxy. So unlike the solar system, where because the sun is the dominant gravitational object, Mercury is moving the fastest as you go further out in the solar system, the speeds of the planets slow down because uh, you know, it falls off as the distance from the sun. In a galaxy, the situation is the opposite, strangely. It turns out that the speeds of stars from the center out actually rise and they flatten out, suggesting that there is gravitationally important material smeared everywhere in the galaxy. So there's this notion of a dark matter halo. It's a lot of dark matter that is there in galaxies. Now, this modified Newtonian dynamics, this theory suggested by Milgram and Bekenstein, exquisitely explains the rotation curves of individual galaxies. However, it fails miserably to explain the properties of clusters. And that's why I like clusters. So, you know, we wrote a paper about uh, seven years ago now where we conclusively showed that, you know, they tried modifying that theory, making it a little more sophisticated to explain light bending without dark matter. Uh, and it turns out that that theory does not survive the test of gravitational lensing by clusters of galaxies. So, the one kind of competing theory that I would not call it a total alternative because it didn't have the entire framework of structure formation like the standard model, current cold dark matter does, model does. 
Um, so that theory is an, a bit of hot water. So that's not a viable alternative. It was a very interesting approach. Um, and you know, and uh, there are still people who are invested in that theory and who are trying to refine it to make it work, uh, not with much success at the moment. I mean, I think what's incredible about this golden age of cosmology is the, the time between the proposal of a new radical idea and when it's tested has shrunk. So you could come up with a new idea. So for example, I have one in the running right now, which is a new idea of how the first black holes formed. And so the standard idea is that they are the end states of massive stars. You form the first stars in the universe. They burn up all their hydrogen. They leave these little seed black holes. And then they grow very rapidly in the early universe and generate all the black holes that we see in the centers of most galaxies, including the ones that are quasars, which are a billion times the mass of the sun. And we are seeing quasars out very large cosmic distances. So now we are detecting quasars when the universe was about one billion years old, right? And even a few million years old, about 400, 500,000 uh, years old. We're starting to see the seeds of the formation of the first structures, right? So, but we are seeing these quasars about two billion years after the Big Bang. They are 10 billion times the mass of the sun, these black holes that are actively feeding that we see as quasars, these bright beacons. The question is, how can you form them from the seeds within two billion years to these huge masses? So we came up with a solution about 15 years ago suggesting that you know, there's an um, easy solution. Instead of making tiny seeds, if the physics permitted you to make very massive black holes, to assemble 10,000, a million times the mass of the sun initial black holes from the get-go, that you know, resolves this timing feeding problem. So we propose this idea of direct collapse black holes that form in the very early universe, which are very massive. So you basically bypass the formation of a star. So instead of forming a star, you somehow directly form a black hole. And to do that, um, you, you need certain physical conditions. And it turns out that in the early universe, those conditions are available. You need large pockets of gas that swirl very rapidly to the center and form a huge, dense concentration in the center of a proto-galaxy. So we've made these predictions for these models. And of course, there are consequences for making black holes or a population of them this way rather than through stars. And those predictions are that you should see very, very bright quasars much earlier into the universe because you form very massive seeds to start with. So this is a prediction that is going to be tested by the James Webb Space Telescope that is going up in um, 2018. So I think the moment, it'll be very exciting uh, to be either proved right or wrong. I mean, I think that's the beauty of science, right? That the fact that you, know, you can sit in your little office in New Haven and make a calculation that a community of people will take seriously enough to test it and do so within 10, 15 years, 
super exciting to be part of that process. Um, what a privilege to be born at this time when that's actually possible. Of course, it would be nice to be right. So, uh, you know, the question of whether you can be uh, proven wrong multiple times and yet be a very respected scientist is an excellent one. And I think there have been many cases where you've had brilliant minds who have come up with ideas, many of which have been proven to be wrong, and yet they are considered still the brightest astrophysicists. So, so the name that comes to mind automatically for me is um, Arthur Eddington, who firmly opposed the idea of black holes. He was, it, the fact that the, the singular objects, the singularity of the center of black hole was something that was very troublesome and unappealing to him. However, uh, and he opposed famously Chandrasekhar, who came up with the idea of um, stellar evolution leading you to these very compact objects, including black holes, as their end product. He contested that very fiercely. I think to his death, he didn't believe in black holes, and they were shown to be right. Um, but you know, yet he was an incredible um, uh, astrophysicist. And I think it would be right to say, reading his papers and his books, he probably understood general relativity at a level and at a profound level that very few since him do. I think the allure of a career in cosmology will always be there. You know, as a, as a young person, as a girl growing up in India, I actually started out being an amateur astronomer. So I looked through a telescope and it was Halley's Comet. Right, and um, I got started, um, and I think for generations, I actually don't see why even with um, technology that prevents us or protects us from um, actually going up uh, mountaintops, looking through telescopes, I think the allure of the night sky will always be with us. So I think. There's never going to be a dearth of people who have a sense of curiosity and wonder about the universe um, and will follow through on it. The question is whether society will value that and whether there'll be a society after all. I mean, I think for me, uh, what is sort of um, a little ironic about people who want to establish colonies on the moon or the Mars is that you know we have this beautiful planet and we can save it we can, um, we can take stewardship and do something about climate change. And I think it's, um, it's not yet time to give up on this planet and what we have here. Personally speaking though, for me also, I don't actually like the world very much. I don't like the inequities. I don't like the strife, don't like wars. So for me, working in cosmology is a form of escape. It definitely is a form of escape. It's a meditation and a form of escape. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I've been very, very fortunate. Um, much of my career has been not strategized, but I've ended up with some of the most fantastic mentors. So I, it first started with um, this woman who was the director of the Nehru Planetarium in New Delhi, Nirupma Raghava, and she's the one who really got me, gave me my first taste of research. And unfortunately, she passed away before I got tenure, so she didn't live to see, although she saw me growing uh, in the field. And after that, I was very lucky to get a scholarship, a full scholarship, to go to MIT. My parents are academics. Uh, and I came from India as a young person to MIT, and there I 
I had the most amazing experiences learning, but also in terms of the people that I worked with in terms of research. So I worked with, uh, my undergraduate uh, thesis was with Alan Guth, um, who was an incredible human being, um, very um, thoughtful, uh, both in his scientific work and as a person. And also um, very much someone who is driven by the love of what he does. And I think that's what's been really important and um, interesting uh, for me in my career, that I've somehow encountered these amazing minds uh, who are also incredible human beings, but for whom the love of what they do was palpable and the passion was palpable. Um, and my PhD, of course, um, I went to work specifically to Cambridge uh, with uh, Professor Martin Rees. Uh, it was just incredible how much um, energy, time, uh, and effort he gave to me uh, to talking about science. And not just about the work um, as well, but also about um, a life in science. Um, and about not so much careerist matters, but about intellectual stuff, about ideas. About, um, so my early, this sort of sparked an interest that's become more and more enduring for me about the interest in how ideas get accepted, how they get contested, uh, what's the pushback, and what it really takes to have an idea tested, how to stick it through, and how sometimes you may be sort of the lone person uh, supporting an idea or pushing it forward, and how to shepherd if you think it's a good idea and how to shepherd it till it's proven right or wrong. So I think I was very fortunate and lucky, um, I realize, in the mentors that I've had. You know, I've also had, I also had a brief um, detour in the history and philosophy of science, and there I had some very exciting uh, mentors as well. Um, I interacted a lot with um, Evelyn Fox Keller, who uh, thinks very deeply about science. And I think that that has also prompted me to be sort of what I think is the kind of scientist I really wanted to be, someone who thinks a lot about the implications of what they're doing, um, not just in terms of the immediate sense of you know, the implications of a particular calculation, but the sort of broader scheme of things of, of a scientific idea and how it becomes knowledge, that whole process. So being much more thoughtful about what I do and um, the larger context, I think I've learned from all these people. And of course now I've been teaching at Yale for about 10 years, so I've had some fantastic students and colleagues um, who have helped me in refining and shaping how I think. Uh, in particular, one of the things that I am after is clarity. I really want to understand things at a very, very profound, clear level. And I'm aspiring. I'm still learning. I'm still working on getting there. And I think a lot of my students, my colleagues that I engage with, that I argue with, um, helped me tremendously and have been helpful in this quest.